life surrounded. Troubles abounded. The path I traveled was cast in darkness. The unknown reached out before me and behind me. I was overwhelmed by struggles. I could not forge my own way. I had to rely on another, leaving my past behind in search of the truth. I took wrong turns and ended up farther from where I was meant to be. But there was grace. There was direction that did not fail. I had faith. When creation rose up around me, I glorified my creator. But I still needed his word, a map to show me the way. Together, they guided me home. There was only one way, Christ alone. There is only one true north. Good morning. It is good to see you here, and uh, those of you in Skagit, so glad that you're with us today, and I look forward to being with you tomorrow uh, for your Christmas Eve Eve services at 5 and 7, and uh, thank you for not uh, just saying, well, I'll go tomorrow and not come today. I'm glad that you're coming today, and I get to see you tomorrow. So those of you online, it's good to have you with us, as well as those in Trinity Church of God in Boca Raton, Florida, uh, thankful that you're with us uh, today. This is our last weekend of the True North series, and I realized, while I've made reference to the whole concept of True North being a bearing point that we focus on, haven't really talked about even that terminology, and I thought as we close out the series, I would spend a few minutes talking about that. Um, if you ever find yourself lost, which seems like an oxymoron, find your, if you ever get lost, it's a good thing to have one of these. I, I don't know if you can see this. I don't know if you know what this is. Compass. It's a good thing to have a compass with you, because while most of you don't know how to use it, um, it's something you can play with while you're waiting to be found. And, uh, and that's cool, that little, the bezel kind of moves around and there's little arrows and stuff and that makes it for a lot of fun and you can go around in circles and such. What most of you are aware of is that the, the needle always points you to north, north. And it's a magnetically charged needle and it will always point to, toward north. So at least you'll know that way is north. Um, magnetic north, uh, that's based on the magnetic fields of the earth. And if you say, well, cool, I don't know where I am, but I know that way is north, so if I go that way far enough, I'll get to the North Pole and I can see Santa and we can talk about those things. That will be a problem because this points to magnetic north, not true north. Now, some of you know this. Some of you, I'm messing with your whole world right now. Like, you always trusted a compass. You can follow that to magnetic north, but it will not take you to the true north pole. It'll take you to the magnetic north pole but not to the true North Pole. Because the true North Pole, or the geographic North Pole, or the terrestrial North Pole, is a fixed point on a, on a sheet of ice that's over the Arctic Ocean. And it's at that point where, where all of the uh, longitudinal lines converge. They, all the line, you know, those lines on the globe, they all converge at that point. Unless you're a flat earther, then it's the very middle of the disk. But we won't go into all that. So it's where all of these lines converge, and it's at that point, if you're ever standing there, at that point, that is the axis on which the earth rotates. That's the axis point. And at that point, if you ever get there, which I don't know why you would ever be there, but if you ever got there and someone said, which direction shall we go? There's only one answer. South. 
Because from that point, everything is south. You're at that point. Now here's the issue with the compass and trying to get to the North Pole, is that the true North Pole and the magnetic North Pole are not in the same point. In fact, depending on what you read or when it was surveyed, the magnetic North Pole is 250 to 300 miles away from the true North Pole. And with that, there's this thing where, if you understand that, there's this thing called the magnetic declination, and it's the degrees of difference. So if you have your compass and you know the magnetic declination, you can still find your way to the North Pole. Some of you are saying, why are we even talking about this? Hold on, it will, it will come to, I think it will come to a point. Uh, but there's this, there's this separation and there's this, this off, this angle that's off, depending on where you are and where you're coming from. Here's the real issue with this, though is that the magnetic North Pole is not static. It's dynamic. And that it's constantly moving based on the magnetic fields of the Earth and all the subterranean lava and whatever that goes into that. And it is currently, as we've been told, currently moving at a, a faster rate than it has been in recent years. That right now the magnetic North Pole is moving at a rate of roughly, give or take, roughly 30 miles a year. So where the magnetic North Pole is today, next year it'll be 30 miles, and it's at this point heading towards Siberia. <clears throat> Some of you are frustrated because your compass has been lying to you your whole life. Now, let me tell you why I give you all of that background. Because in our series, when we're talking about true north on a spiritual or theological level, is that there are times when there's this magnetic drift away from what is true. There's this magnetic drift where there's this, this theological declination. There's this spiritual declination where there's beliefs or practices or theology that goes away from what is really true. And as we've been looking at in this series, on a grand scale, on a macro level, the big C church, there was a massive shift away. And in the 16th century, there was a correction, the, the reformation, to get back to true north. And the reality is, it wasn't just something that happened, past tense. This is something that happens. There are entire denominations that have these magnetic drifts away from the truth. There are churches that will have these magnetic draws away from the truth. There are pastors that will have these drifts away from the truth. I believe that most cults that exist started on true north. And somewhere along the way, and usually it's a leader that was impacted by one of three or all three of these things, power, money, and sex. Usually they're kind of drawn in and they're magnetically drawn away from the truth and they begin to manipulate, they begin to misinterpret, and they begin to reinterpret, and they begin to read into all these things. That's how cults start. Now while we talk about this on the macro level with the church and churches and pastors, we can get real personal because the truth is, this happens in our lives. I'm not suggesting that you'll drift off and become some heretical Satan-worshiping cult leader, maybe, hopefully not, but the truth is there are times when we begin to drift a little bit, at times where our values change, where our priorities get skewed, where our convictions are, are lessened, where the spiritual disciplines fade and, and the spiritual fervor begins to die out, and maybe we just get off and we get to focus on things that aren't really that important. And we need to get back to a true north, to a bearing that will keep us on a life and an eternity that is solid. I think this happens to all of us. I know it's happened in my life. It happens. 
That's why it's so important for us to be in the word of God, so important for us to be with the fellowship of believers, so important for us to be in the gatherings where we worship together and look in the word together and challenge each other and sharpen each other and and keep each other focused. There was an individual in history who found himself with this massive spiritual declination. It was way off base. His name was John. And he wrote a song after he kind of came to, pretty famous song. And in this song, he says, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. What was it, what song? Amazing Grace. Now I sing that song, most of you have, your whole lives. And what's interesting is, The second verse, for decades, I sung these words and never once even thought about them. The second verse says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Sang them, continued on, never thought about it. And then I began to ponder, how can grace teach your heart to fear? Grace is a good thing. He's writing about this amazing grace and that fear is not a good thing. How can grace cause your heart to fear? And as I begin to think about this, and I don't know if this is exactly what he was getting at, but here's what I think it could mean. Tied with the end of the first verse, I once was blind, but now I see. Then he says, "'Twas grace that taught my my heart to fear, that at one time my life was blinded to the truth and reality about the recognition of my condition. But by the grace of God, my eyes were opened, the blinders were taken away, and I saw my condition, and it was scary." The reality was something that was very fear-inducing. When I began to see the reality of my condition, that my sin, my rebellion, my disobedience, my self-centeredness, regardless of how much I try to downplay it, how much I try to dismiss it, how much I try to excuse it, how much I try to rationalize and justify and compare to those who are worse, when I get a clear picture of my own sinfulness, it's a frightful thing. And then when I realized the, 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 the condition that no matter how hard I work, no matter how many good works I do, no matter how much I try, I can't make up for that. It's a frightful situation to be in. And if grace lets me see that, it would cause me to be afraid to get to this place where I recognize that outside of some, some external force, some external source, some external dispensation of something, My situation is hopeless and worthless. The recognition of that condition is a scary thought. This uh, year during Advent, I've been reading an Advent devotional by Ann Voskamp. I think it's called The Greatest Gift. I think it's the name of the book. Um, But in this uh, readings, uh, there is a line that I thought, this this is what I think I'm trying to express. She writes this. You aren't equipped for life until you realize you aren't equipped for life. You aren't equipped for life until you're in need of grace. When you recognize that in and of yourself, by yourself, your own actions, your own deeds, your own efforts leave you still guilty, condemned, with no hope, at that point, you reach out for something called grace. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace, my fears, relieved. It's not dependent on me. I don't have to do this myself. I can't do this myself. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Now everything has changed. And this is a true north point. 
If we begin to sway off of that, we begin to stray from that into a graceless religion, we find ourselves so off base. The writer of Hebrews gives us these words, says, see to it that, in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. And this is good for us because of how often sometimes we try to do it on our own and think it's about our efforts. See to it that none of us miss the grace of God, that we don't sway off of that true north bearing. And maybe it's not just for us. Because we who have been the recipients of God's grace ought to be the ones who dispense God's grace more than anyone else. And yet I would imagine if you ask the average American, do a word association. I'll say a word and you give me the first word that comes to your mind. Church. I doubt grace is the first word that comes to people's minds. The message of the church. Don't. Not grace. The people of the church, Christians, Christ followers, the first word that comes to people's minds is probably not grace. And yet we have this command, see to it that no one misses the grace of God. I don't know, maybe you have been on the receiving end of some graceless Christians. In a circumstance, a decision that you made in your life, a situation where you were met by a graceless church, a graceless pastor. And again, if we're really honest, maybe you've been on the dispensing end of a lack of grace for someone, some group, some pastor, some wayward one. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. This is our true north. I find it interesting that the very last verse of the entire Bible, this epic story, this God's narrative, the very last word, like the closing salutation, the last thing, the thing that I'm gonna leave you with that, that will never be added to, the very last verse of the Bible, Revelation 22, the grace, Revelation 22, the, Revelation 22, Next verse. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. <laughs> there it is. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. And that's what I want us to talk about today as we conclude this True North series. You know, in the, in the Christmas story in John chapter 1, it talks about Jesus and it says this in John 1. We'll see if these work. The word became flesh, Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. So we've been in this series, uh, True North, and we've been looking at the five solas, only, alone, these five Latin statements that are pillars of the Reformation that got the church back onto true north. And, and we've looked at them, sola scriptura, by scripture alone, sola fide, we looked at that one, by faith alone, sola gratia, we'll hit this one, uh, that's by grace alone, solus Christus, Jesus Christ alone, soli deo, gloria, all glory to God alone. 
And today as we wrap up the series, um, we're going to actually have to hit two of these, uh, Sola Gratia and Solus Christus. So with that, I apologize because I'm only going to be able to kind of scratch the surface. Hopefully it will whet your appetite. I will say this, what we talk about today will set the foundation for what we talk about at our Christmas Eve services um, on Monday in Skagit and Tuesday here. Um, those are standalone services, but they will build on what we talk about today. As I've said, this is a very unique Advent series. It's not your typical Advent series, but we begin to understand these things. It will draw us into a sweeter, deeper, richer worship of the one whose birth we celebrate this time of year. And we begin to understand these things. And what's amazing is while they're all separate, the reformers saw them as five pieces of one that upon the authority of scripture alone, not tradition, not the words of the Pope, but on scripture alone, that salvation came through Christ alone, by faith alone, through faith, all for the glory of God alone. And when we're talking about solus Christus, Jesus, Christ alone, and solus, uh, sola gratia, the grace alone, these two are almost inseparable. Because Jesus comes full of grace and truth. When you have Jesus, you have grace. They're inseparable. And you see how they're tied to what we talked about last week, the sola fide, by faith alone. And you see that those are almost inseparable as well. The, the verse, a very familiar verse to many of you that illustrates this so well is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace, there it is, you have been saved through faith. That was last week. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. So some might say, okay, well, let's clarify this. Are we saved by grace or are we saved by faith? Yes. They are two sides of the same coin. They're inseparable. Uh, let me just kind of like, I'll admit this. Oversimplify this concept, okay? I, I know, you, some of you can take me to task, you're right. I'm, just, I'm trying to oversimplify it. When it comes to our salvation, Grace is what God has done. Faith is our response to it. Oversimplified, I know. Grace is what he offers to us. Faith is how we receive it. And we find that this grace and faith go together. And today we're gonna to spend a little bit of time on this sola gracia, the, the, grace alone. Uh, Philip Yancey, um, in his book, What's so, great, what's so amazing about grace? And he wrote a follow-up book called Vanishing Grace. I, I love Philip Yancey as an author, by the way. In What's So Amazing About Grace, he said that grace, the word grace, is the last best word. It's the last best word. And he goes on to explain that in our English language, words have a tendency to, to kind of grow and evolve and shift and change, and sometimes their meaning changes, and sometimes the nuances associated with it changes. And let me give you an example. He didn't give you this example. I'm giving it to you. The word literally <laughs> in our culture now means figuratively, which is the exact opposite of what it's supposed to mean. I saw that, and I literally had a heart attack. Well, no, you didn't. It means the opposite in our culture now. He says sometimes words change and sometimes they get baggage put on them and filters put on them. For, for instance, uh, he says like the word charity. It used to be that charity was the highest word to express love. It's the most beautiful word to express love. Uh, some of you who are like Jesus freaks and hippies in the late 60s and, and early 70s, you may remember a song, if I have not charity, if love does not flow through me, I am nothing, Jesus reduced me to love. Does anyone remember that song at all? No hippies here. Okay, well, all right. Jesus hadn't made his way to the Northwest. Anyway, 
this idea of charity was this incredibly beautiful expression of love. And today it's like, don't make me your charity case. It's got just this, this negative connotation that goes with it. He says, but grace, grace is the word that has never lost its beauty, never lost its glory, never lost its splendor. Grace, the very word grace, contains within it the essence of the gospel, he says, in the same way that a drop of water contains the image of the sun. All of the gospel can be contained in this word of grace. And we need grace. We live in such a a performance-oriented world, and some of that's necessary by design. Most of our life is performance-driven, right? Athletics, that's performance-driven. Even from the earliest, well, maybe not the earliest ages, but shortly after that. The better you perform in practice, the more playing time you get. The more playing time you get, the more letters you get, or awards, or accolades, Later, maybe it's the better you perform, the more scholarships you'll get. Maybe the better you perform, the better draft pick you'll get. The better you perform, the more you'll get paid. It's all performance-based in business, in work, in vocations. You perform, you have a performance review. You don't have a grace review. It's a performance review. And if you perform well, you might get a promotion. You might get a raise. You might, you know, move your way up into the company or what have you. That is all performance-based. Our stocks, how are they performing, we ask. Academics, how you do on your tests and your grades, that is based on your performance. You perform well, you'll get A's. You perform well, you'll get on the honor society. You perform well. Now, granted, your mom can pay money and cause your SAT scores to go up, but the rest of it, too soon? The rest of it, it's based on performance. And the problem is that performance attitude, that performance mentality starts making its way into our spirituality and into our religion. And so we start living in this performance-based religion instead of saying it's grace, it's all grace. Years ago, there were some scholars in Oxford having a discussion about religions of the world. And the question came up, is there anything unique that Christianity has that no other religion has. And they were discussing it. The incarnation, no, there's other religions that talk about deities becoming humans. The resurrection, no, there's other religions that talk about things coming back to life and such. And it's reported that C.S. Lewis, he was alive then, walks into the room and asks, what are you discussing? And they threw this out. We're trying to figure out, is there anything that's unique about Christianity than any other religion? And he said, without hesitation, that's easy. It's grace. No other religion has grace. In Buddhism, you have the Noble Eightfold Pathway, and depending on how you perform on that pathway depends on how and when you reach nirvana. In Hinduism, there's the whole concept of karma and samsara and this cycle of of going through life after life after life. It's based on your performance. In Judaism, it's the covenant that you're a part of and you're keeping your side of the covenant. In Hinduism, it's the law and the scales of, am I gonna do more good than bad? And at the end of it, it's if I have more good deeds than bad deeds, then I make it in. Christianity alone, Jesus alone, has this thing called grace that is not based on our performance. It's by what he has done for us and what he offers to us. Let me kind of just point this out so we can kind of see the difference here. Justice is a good thing. And we have a God of justice. Justice is fair. We want a God who is just. Justice says this, I get what I deserve, for good or for bad. I've done this, I get rewarded, I do this, there's consequences. That's justice, that's a fair system. 
And God is a just God. Mercy, mercy is different than justice. Mercy is, I don't get what I deserve. And that's because of some of the negative. Now here's the difference. When you and another car are racing down the street and all of a sudden you come over the rise of a hill and there's a policeman, you want that car to get justice and you want to get mercy. They ought to, I should. And then we have grace. And grace is getting what I could never deserve. Grace isn't just doing away with what I deserve. It's giving me what I could never, ever deserve. Five, six months ago, we started uh, studying the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians 2 starts off again with this foundation of bad news. That we are all dead in our transgressions and our sins. We were dead, spiritually dead. We had been gratifying the sinful desires, the fleshly lust, the, the, that nature. We, we had been disobedient and we had become objects of wrath. Guilty, condemned. That's justice. We did these things, we deserve this. That's justice. Verse four starts with that word that we looked at last week, but, wait a second, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy doesn't give me what I deserve, made us alive in, with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace, gives me what I could never deserve that you have been saved. And he goes on in verse six and he says, and you have been raised up with Christ and seated with Christ. You don't deserve that. None of us deserve that. We were objects of wrath, but God's mercy says, I'm not gonna pay, I'm not gonna make you pay for that. In fact, instead, I'm gonna give you grace and give you what you could never, ever deserve. You see, grace is a one-sided transaction. It's been defined as unmerited favor. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. It's not owed to me. If I could earn grace, it wouldn't be grace. It would be remuneration. It would be compensation. If it was something that I deserved, it would be about fairness and justice. It's none of those things. It's what God does. You know, in Psalm 18, there's this beautiful picture of how God just pours out his grace. And it says this, you give me your shield of victory and your right hand sustains me. And then look at this. You stoop down to make me great. You know, this verse is all about us and not at all about us. It's the grace of God, his victory, his power, his hand, his willingness to stoop down to make us great. Why would he do that? Why would God pour out his grace on us? He's not obligated to. He doesn't need to. We don't deserve it. Ephesians 2, 7 says this. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness in Christ Jesus. That it's because God wants to demonstrate how great he is Soli Deo Gloria. The reason God pours out his grace on us is so that he receives the glory. You know, Paul writes to young Timothy in 1 Timothy, he says, listen, here's a trustworthy statement that deserves acceptance. Christ came to save sinners, and he says, of whom I am the worst. I'm the worst. 
He's not judging anybody else, not condemning. He says, I'm the worst, and Christ came to save me. And then he says, here's why. It's to demonstrate the grace of our God, demonstrate the patience of Christ, demonstrate his love, so that others can see that. They can recognize, man, if God can do that for Paul, he can do it for me, and all glory goes to God. And back to Ephesians, he ends this whole passage and says, for it is by grace, something you could never, ever deserve, that you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. God says, I give you this gift. I just give it to you. See, in the Old Testament, God's people were given the law, the law to follow, and it was important. But in the New Covenant, the New Testament, something else is given. Again, in that passage in John chapter 1, it says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth. Gratia et veritas, Latin. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see, if you grasp that, if you grasp the concept of grace and it doesn't cause your worship of Jesus to be deeper and sweeter and richer than ever before, there's an issue right here. This changes everything. Now, gotta stop with that one because I wanna talk about the other one too, the solus Christus. They're connected, but I wanna turn our focus now to this solus Christus, Christ alone. And if you've been here for any length of time, you know that Jesus Christ is our epicenter. He's the axis on which we revolve around. I mean, he is our true north. And, and we make no apologies to say we point people to Jesus. Our goal is to point people to Jesus. We want you to see Jesus, pursue Jesus, know Jesus, love Jesus, worship Jesus, follow Jesus, surrender to Jesus, submit to Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, become more like Jesus. It's all about Jesus around here. And some of you say, well, well duh. You're a church. Of course it is. Here's where there's a little bit of maybe a rub in our culture. Solus Christus. Jesus alone. And in our culture with the pluralistic, you know, relative truth, and if, if we don't just, you know, embrace and celebrate everyone's thoughts or beliefs that somehow we're haters, this can be seen as being narrow-minded and judgmental and so, you know, so small and just all these things. Here's the reality. When you're talking about solus Christus, there is truth. We have to acknowledge this. There's Christ's exclusivity. But follow me on this. The exclusivity of Christ as followers of his is not to be this smug, arrogant thing that we go around hammering people with. Remember, we are following the one who is full of grace and truth. We get the truth thing right sometimes and miss out on the grace part. That when we talk about the truth about Jesus, it ought to be done respectfully, not in a belittling, demeaning way. But there is an exclusivity towards Jesus. Now, before you turn me off, hear me all the way out. You hear online, listen to me all the way through on this one. What I want to do for the remainder of our time is I want us to look at why is it that we here at Cornwall hold to this solus Christus, Jesus alone, even if it seems exclusive. Uh, in this book by Ann Voskamp, 
um, she wrote this line, and I, I thought it was fantastic. Christianity isn't so much about exclusiveness, but effectiveness. What will actually save us? Said, so let's get out of the philosophical. Let's just get pragmatic. What works? I mean, this may be a bad example, but in, uh, on December 13th, 1799, so just over 220 years ago, December 13th, 1799, George Washington woke up with a sore throat. True story. And the sore throat wasn't going away and he wasn't feeling very good. And so he went to the physicians and asked them to perform a medical procedure that was very common in those days, a medical procedure that he believed in. It's called bloodletting. The whole concept is that the sickness is in the blood, so if you drain out the blood, the sickness will go forward. And so the physicians came in and drained between five and seven pints of George Washington's blood within a matter of 16 hours. Four days later, he died. Now, we could say, listen, we don't do bloodletting anymore. You say, you're so narrow-minded, you're so judgmental. No, 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 no. As gracefully as I can say this, here's the truth. Draining your blood is not the best way to fix a sore throat. <laughs> and when it comes to the exclusivity of Christ, that you're so narrow-minded, no, 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 no. As gracefully as I can say this, he's the only one that can save us based now on the authority of Scripture alone, let me remind you why it's Christ alone. Christ alone is the only Son, the only Son of God. He's not just another prophet. He's not just an anointed teacher. He's not just a powerful healer. He is God's Son. Most famous verse in the whole Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only, only begotten Son. In John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That yes, Jesus is the only Son of God, but he is one with the Father. As we've looked at before, the Word came, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us for a while, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only comes from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, Jesus is not the brother of Lucifer, He's not a, a contemporary or a par or a, you know, a, 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 a co-leader with Buddha or Muhammad. Jesus, the Son of God, is God, Christ alone, the only Son. Here's another one. Christ alone is the only name, the only name. You know, we sing this song, you know, what a powerful name it is. What a beautiful name, what a wonderful name it is. What a powerful name. In Acts chapter three, there's, a, there's a, an event that happens where James and John heal a man who's been crippled. And people see this and they're like, whoa, what's going on? And they begin to talk about Jesus and his resurrection. People begin following this man, Jesus. In Acts chapter four, James and John are arrested by the religious leaders who are not really excited about what's going on. And they ask this question, by what power and by what name are you doing these things? And they said... We do this in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then in, in, in Acts chapter four, verse 12, it says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. No other name. This is exclusivity. There's only one name. And that name is not Oprah Winfrey. And it's not Russell Wilson. And it's not Elon Musk. And it's not Mark Zuckerberg, 
And shall I say, it's not Donald Trump, Nancy Pelosi, Bernie Sanders, or Brian Mengel. <laughs> there is one name, and that's the name of Jesus. And Christ alone is the only way. He's not a way. He's not one of many ways. That, that's a real popular way of thinking, this whole idea of that, you know, all these religions, yeah, yeah, they've got differences, but they all lead to the same God. They're all kind of different paths to the same mountaintop. That's a very popular concept. I'll also say this, not in a judgmental, it's also a very simplistic concept. Because if you say, well, all these religions are all kind of basically going to the same thing, same God, same heaven, same eternity, you can only say that if you haven't even done a cursory study of the religions of the world. Because it's not the same thing. You know, it's, it's this idea of it's like, we're all going to Spokane, heaven on earth. Some are going to go I-90 and it's going to be a breeze. Some are going to take Highway 2 and go over at Stevens Pass. There's some that are going to go down to Portland, they're going to go out I-84 and then up through Walla Walla and then up through uh, Colfax in that way. Some are going to try to take Highway 20. It's beautiful. Some are going to go up into Canada and take the Trans-Canadian and then come down by Colville. And, then, and we're all going to end up at Spokane. That seems fine if you're going to Spokane. But Jesus himself said, a very exclusive statement, in John 14, 6, I am one of many... No, no, no. I am the way, the truth in the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's not about an ego. He's simply saying all these other roads, I'll say this gracefully, the truth is they're all dead-end roads. They don't lead to the Father. There's only one way. And Christ alone is the only mediator. When you have a holy God of life and sinful rebellious, dead in their trespasses, humans, there needs to be a go-between, someone to bridge that gap, someone to be a mediator between the two. In 1 Timothy we read, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. Just one. Which leads us to the fifth one there, and that Christ alone is the only sacrifice. He's the only sacrifice that is adequate, that is lasting, and that is final. In Hebrews chapter 10, says, day after day, priests stand and perform his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest... When this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And this great high priest that offered this one sacrifice that would take care of all sins is in a category all by himself because he himself was the sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 9 but now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of
of many people. You see, this whole concept of the exclusivity of Christ, it's not just about, well, our deity's better and we get a little bit uh, intimidated if your deity makes some ground on ours. It's not that at all. Let's be practical. He's the only one that can save us. Take a look at this list. He's the only son of God. It's only his name by which we can be saved. He's the only way to the Father. He's the only mediator between us and the Father. And he was the only sacrifice that could take away our sins. Of course. Paul writes in Colossians and he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, whether things in heaven or on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, he created all things and all things are created by him and for him. You know, he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things in heaven or on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That cannot be said about anyone else but Christ alone. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Jesus, the one, the fullness of God. In John 1, it says, from his fullness, we have all received Grace upon grace. Grace in place of grace that was already given. Solus Christus, sola gratia, Christ alone, grace alone. In this time of year when we celebrate that the infinite became an infant, that the transcendent descended, that the one who is wholly other becomes one of us. If you don't find that enhancing your worship of Jesus, then you need to take a serious look inside. The shepherds, uneducated, unreligious, it changed their worship. Luke chapter two, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they'd been told. Their worship was enhanced, it was sweeter, it was richer, it was deeper, because they met this Jesus. And that's not all. It also says about the shepherds that when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The shepherds realized, this is too good to keep as a secret. This, everyone needs to hear about. And while there is exclusivity with Christ, who he is, exclusive. He is unmatched by any other. He stands alone in a, in a category of one. What he's done, he alone is that sacrifice. He alone is that mediator. No one else is closer to, can even be close to that. There is exclusivity. But in who he is and what he's done, you find Christ's inclusivity why he did it, and who he did it for was everyone. And this is what I just want to say as we close our time here today, is that in the next couple of days, here in Skagit, we're going to be having six Christmas Eve services. And we have been 
encouraging you to pray, to come, to invite, to be a part of that. And I wanna continue to encourage you to pray, to attend, to bring others. And let me tell you the reason why. It's not just so that we can fill the room. It's not just about a big number. It's not about trying to you know, have our biggest attendance ever. That has nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with this fact that Christmas Eve in this time of year, truly, in the Northwest anyway, more than any other day of the year, including Easter, Christmas Eve and the Christmas Eve Eve in Skagit, this time of year, people who do not go to church are more inclined and more willing to go to a church service these days than any other day of the year. And why not leverage that to be able to take that opportunity to bring this incredible news about Jesus and the grace that he brings? So tomorrow, Skagit, be there and bring friends and pray. And Tuesday here in Bellingham, be here, pray, bring friends. Pray that the message of the truth, of the good news of the gospel, falls on receptive ears. That that amazing grace that takes away the blinders, that takes away the, the blind and opens their eyes to see the truth, would be received. That's why we do our Christmas Eve services. It's to spread this message of Jesus Christ and the grace that he offers to everyone. So pray, be here, and don't come alone.